So if you would, open up with me to our sermon text, which does come once again from the book of 1 Kings. We'll be looking at an entire chapter this morning, 1 Kings chapter 21. So hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab came to Naboth, or what, I'm sorry, one day Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. <clears throat> but Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor, and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth at a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat across from him and they accused Naboth before all the people saying, he cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, you know that vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now, he's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. But the Lord said to Elijah, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they licked the blood of Naboth. So, my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered. I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I am going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Baasha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. 
The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. No one else so completely sold himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. And let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again this morning for your word, for your word that is so honest and is such a blessing to your people as we sit at the foot of it. But as we sit at the foot of this word now, we do pray that you would accomplish in us everything that you have set forward from eternity past to accomplish in this group of people on this day from this passage. Lord, we pray that you would give each one of us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand your word, that you would plant it deep in our hearts and that you would cause it to bear much fruit now and in the years and decades to come in our life. We pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we come into our chapter from 1 Kings this morning, my sense is that as you listened to that text being read today, or perhaps as you may go back on your own at some point to read it, that there are probably two types of emotions that we may have as we read through a text like this, or in particular this, this one today. On the one hand, there could be this great relief and comfort that we see when we see all of God's people being encouraged that God comes to the defense of his saints. When we see that the Lord exercises judgment against those who have been wickedly unjust. So I believe one emotion that we should be filled with as we read through this chapter is relief, comfort from a chapter like this. But on the other hand, we may also feel the emotion of sadness or confusion or perhaps even one of disappointment when we read this chapter because while God does promise justice on behalf of his dear saint Naboth, it happens after Naboth has already been killed. And actually, as we'll mention a little bit later, after Naboth and all of his sons, in fact, have been killed. You see, what we have in our passage today is an account of a righteous man becoming a victim at the hands of false accusations, which leads to the death of himself and of all of his sons. And we also have in our passage an account of a righteous God bringing judgment on those responsible. Yet that judgment comes after the hideous crime has played itself out. Again, we see this dual emotion in here. I would imagine if we really thought about it, most in here, this is my guess, may be on that first side, all right? But some of us are maybe on that second side. 
And what I hope we're gonna see this morning is that we wanna be able to pick up on both of these emotions as we work our way through the passage, to reckon with both sides of this one coin, which are both present in our text. Because verses one to 16 really focus on the one side, while verses 17 to 29 focus on the other. So with all that said this morning, we've got two main points that we wanna see as we work our way through chapter 21. Point number one, in a fallen world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness temporarily. In a fallen world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness temporarily. But then point number two, in God's economy, wickedness will always be punished permanently. In God's economy, wickedness will always be punished permanently. You see, we have to hold both of these statements in tandem if we're gonna really understand life in, number one, this world, but then also, number two, the world to come. So let's get started. Point number one, in a fallen world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness temporarily. And we see this, of course, in verses one to 16. And while I'm not gonna break everything down here because there really is so much, there are some things that I want us to understand. So right out of the gate, I will say this is a truth, our first point this morning, that we probably don't enjoy admitting. But if we don't admit this truth, then we will struggle to understand the world in which we live, this fallen world in the here and now. In fact, in our text, King Ahab doesn't even understand this truth nearly as well as his wife Jezebel understands it. Now, of course, we're gonna see Jezebel doesn't understand or acknowledge our second truth this morning, our second point, but she does understand this first one quite well, at least part of it. She knows that in this present world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness. She knows that, and she's gonna use that to her advantage. So look at how the chapter begins. We have a man named Naboth. He has a family vineyard, and that vineyard is located adjacent to King Ahab's palace. And then one day, Ahab lusts after that vineyard for himself, so he inquires about it. And I wanna say this, if we just pause right here, how amazing is God's providence for his people that this is how the story has to begin? Because think, in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, if the king wanted a vineyard next to his palace, would he have to go inquire with his citizen to get it? He wouldn't, he would just go take it, right? But that's not how things work in God's economy. In God's economy, the king is not a rule unto himself. He is underneath God's law. And God's law had made a very clear provision for how all the property in the promised land was supposed to be treated. And I like what Dale Ralph Davis has to say here regarding Naboth's decision not to sell his land to King Ahab. Davis says, now there was no absolute prohibition against selling the land. Under certain emergencies, an Israelite could sell land. But these conditions did not apply, apply in Naboth's case. He doesn't seem to be suffering from any grinding poverty necessitating his selling of the land. If he need not sell, 
then he should not sell, hence his refusal. He treasures Yahweh's land gift passed down from his ancestors much more than making a few bucks or placating the king. You see, Naboth is not in need of selling this land that has been in his family's possession since his ancestors entered the promised land, they conquered Jericho, and at some point in the years to come, his family received this land. Hundreds of years earlier, his family had received this as a gift from the Lord, and so he is not going to treat that gift from the Lord with contempt. So of course, he tells Ahab no. And then Ahab's response is actually interesting when we really dissect this passage, because his response is, Ultimately, he just takes it from Naboth, doesn't he? He just assumes that there's nothing he can do about it. Now, of course, he's not happy. So children in here, this is quite a response from the king of Israel, isn't he? In effect, here's what the king of Israel does. He gets mad, he runs home, he slams his door, and he tells his people there, I'm not coming down to eat. Right? This is a two-year-old temper tantrum. He gets angry, he's sullen, mad face gets on, he goes home, slams the door, and he's not coming down to eat. And yet, what we need to observe is Ahab in his mind doesn't think there's actually anything he can do if Naboth won't sell the land. Why? Because at some level, he accepts the authority of God's law over the promised land. So if you zoom out real quick, Of course, we see Ahab behaving very embarrassingly. It's a grown man having a two-year-old temper tantrum, but it's actually a temper tantrum against the Lord. It's a temper tantrum that acknowledges there's nothing he can do if Naboth won't sell. So his temper tantrum is maybe against the law, or maybe it's against Naboth for not being willing to deny the law, to sell the land, but either way, at least he isn't taking matters into his own hands. He throws a fit, but he doesn't decide to go his own way. It's the only good thing about Ahab's response here. And yet that one good thing about Ahab's response is the one thing that Jezebel sees as most embarrassing. You see, she comes in and she says, are you the king of Israel or not? Now, stop and think about that phrase, because this is very important. Is Ahab the king of Israel or not? All right, of course he is. We know that he's the king of Israel. But is that what Jezebel means? Is that what she's asking? It isn't. She isn't asking him, are you the one who is king over the people and charged with upholding the law that has been given to you? She's actually asking, aren't you the one who gets to make the rules? Aren't you the one who gets to decide how things are going to go? Do you see how that's actually different? That's what Jezebel is asking. And kids, I'll give it to you this way. This is maybe a helpful way for you to think what's going on in this passage. When you think of your parents' authority, you can have this in mind. Are your parents the ones in charge of your house, of your family? They are. They are the ones that are in charge of making sure that God's law and God's gospel governs your home. 
but your parents are not in charge in such a way that they get to make the rules in your house apart from the word of the Lord. Case in point, just one example. Your parents do not have the freedom to decide whether they are going to bring you to church on Sunday or not as if it is a legitimate option for them to choose to not bring you to church under normal circumstances. Now, of course, if someone's sick, that's different. If there are extreme circumstances, that's something that's different. But parents do not have the option to decide whether it's just easier or more comfortable to them to not bring you to church on a Sunday morning, especially if they've covenanted before this body to raise you up in the faith in conjunction with the other members here at Village Prez. So just as parents are in charge, but not to the level that they get to make their own rules apart from the Lord, so too is Ahab in charge, but not in a way that he gets to make his own rules outside of God's law. However, That makes no sense to Jezebel. And this is where we have to remember, Jezebel isn't an Israelite. Where she comes from, this is probably not the way her dad would act as king. So this makes no sense to her at all. She knows that in this present world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness. Not always, but often. And I will say, especially when the wicked are in power. She knows that since Naboth is going to remain righteous, then it will be very easy in one sense for her to triumph over him in this sinful fallen world, right? She sees this scene and there's zero issue for her in understanding how she's gonna get this vineyard. And let me say it one more time because I think we forget this all the time as Christians and we have to grasp it. Jezebel knows that since Naboth is going to remain righteous, then it is going to be very easy for her in one sense to triumph over him in this sinful fallen world, okay? Now, we don't like that truth. It's part of why Jesus had to come, isn't it? But we need to acknowledge this truth. All Jezebel has to do is take Ahab's place of authority, send some letters, orchestrate false witnesses to make accusations, do it all under the guise of religious blasphemy and have him killed. And in fact, as we'll find out when we get into 2 Kings, 2 Kings 9, not only does she have Naboth killed, she has all of his sons killed as well. So there is no one to get that vineyard as their inheritance. And let me say it one more time, because Naboth remains righteous in all of this, And the elders and leaders in Israel don't stand up to Jezebel's wickedness, but participate in it. This is actually very easy for Jezebel to accomplish. She sent some letters, she got one back, and then Ahab had his vineyard. You see, temporarily in this fallen world with those qualifiers, wickedness quite easily triumphed over righteousness. And for Jezebel, she thinks that's the end of the story. Now y'all, hear me say this. This point still remains true today. Kids, I know I'm talking to y'all a lot this morning, but this is very important for y'all to understand. So children, I want you to really listen to this. If you want to get quick, easy victories in this fallen world, then you can decide to be sinful and wicked. And you will be able to get temporary victories all over the place. 
short-term success, immediate gratification, quick moments of fleeting happiness and self-satisfaction before you're beckoned to run off to the next one. That is all true inside this fallen world. And parents, before y'all get on me for saying that, our kids already know this, don't they? Right, one example. They see it, we see it all around them. Their classmate cheats on a test, gets a better score than them, and hardly ever does that classmate get caught cheating. The list of examples goes on and on, and our children see it every day. So we do our children a disservice if we say that righteous living is going to provide quick, easy victories in this life, or short-term success, or immediate gratification, or fleeting moments of happiness, because that isn't actually true. Oftentimes, righteous living is going to require us to give up those quick, easy victories in life and short-term success and immediate gratifications and fleeting moments of happiness. Our job as the adults in this room isn't to try and get all of these kids we see in here to think that righteousness is going to produce those things. Our job is to show them that those things simply will not last. That's what we have to hold out to the children in this room, that they're temporary. Sure, they can get them by being sinful and wicked, but they will be gone before they know it. And thus what we are called to do is to direct their eyes elsewhere to something greater so that when the wicked seem to be winning all around them, and in fact, when the wicked really are winning short-term fleeting victories within this fallen world, then they will not become discouraged. And by now y'all probably see what I'm doing, the adults in here. How are we gonna teach the kids at Village Press this truth? Only if we, the adults, really understand it ourselves. Because here's the thing, these supposed victories of the wicked that we see all around us all the time in this world, in this fallen world, will not be the end of the story. Far from it. Which leads us then to point number two. Point two, in God's economy, wickedness will always be punished permanently. In God's economy, wickedness will always be punished permanently. We see this in verses 17 through 29. And right away, we see that while Jezebel and Ahab may think the story's over, we know it's not because God has seen every single thing that has gone on from the beginning. Y'all never doubt that the Lord misses anything, right? He sees and he knows and he acts. So the Lord sends Elijah to confront Ahab and deliver this message. It is a message of destruction and doom. You see, wickedness did win the initial victory temporarily within this fallen world. We have to acknowledge that. But ultimately, it is now going to be punished completely, permanently, and eternally in God's timing. So Elijah approaches Ahab, and Ahab sees him and calls out, Ah, my enemy, you found me. Now, let me say this. If you remember, back in 1 Kings 18, Elijah approached Ahab, and Ahab said, ah, the troubler of Israel. And what did Elijah do? He corrected him, because I wasn't true. 
He wasn't the troubler of Israel. Ahab and Jezebel were the troublers of Israel. But here, does Elijah correct Ahab? He does not. Because you see, Elijah's bringing the word of the Lord. And when Ahab says, my enemy, he is rightly stating that the word of the Lord now is his enemy because he has put himself on the opposing side of God and the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you ever see the word of the Lord, even in small places, as your enemy? Do you ever look at it and think, I don't like that very much? You know what? I don't like what that part of God's word has to say about who I am and the decisions I make. I don't really like the way God's word shows us how he's ordered this world. I don't like what it has to say about the way I spend my time or my money or my efforts. I don't like the calling it puts on my life. I don't like the way it exposes my innermost thoughts and feelings. Y'all, whether we want to admit it or not, practically, don't we sometimes too act as if God's word is our enemy? Now that's Ahab's state at this point. Hopefully for us, that's not our state, but it's a good reminder when we have that inclination that we want to immediately turn in that way. Now Ahab acknowledges that Elijah, the word of God here, is his enemy and he isn't wrong. By now we've seen so much wickedness from Ahab and Jezebel that it is this final act of oppression and injustice, of murder and deceit, theft and abuse of power. This is what has now stored up and brought judgment upon them that must come to pass. And I'll say, because Ahab is the king of Israel, it's gonna be a special level of judgment too. It's gonna be the type of judgment that we saw earlier in our series that came upon Jeroboam and Baasha, which would be the destruction of his dynasty as it was Jeroboam's and Baasha's. You see, Ahab and Jezebel did win a temporary victory and we have to acknowledge that, they did. They claimed the vineyard for themselves. Their wickedness won out temporarily in this fallen world and yet let me ask this, was it worth it? Was it worth it for them? There is something much greater than this sinful fallen world. And that is the economy of God, the rule of the Lord. God's standards and God's kingdom, which always supersede anything in this fallen world. So the temporary victory for Ahab has now become the source of his permanent judgment set in stone that must be paid without exception. And then we get these last two things in the chapter. First, we see this summary reminder of who Ahab is, and I wanna read that, verses 25 and 26. No one else so completely sold himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. And again, if y'all been with us for this whole series, we just see all these subsequent kings in the Northern Kingdom outdoing themselves in wickedness from one to the next. But for Ahab, the catalyst for his was the influence of his wife, Jezebel. So I'll ask this, is Ahab responsible for his own sins? Absolutely, we certainly see that. But also, 
did Jezebel's presence as a voice in his life impact how bad his sins became and thus how harsh his judgment would become? Absolutely. That truth is there as well. So as a major side note here, we could spend a long time, but I do just want to mention, y'all be careful who you allow to speak into your life. What sources you get, who you listen to, what podcasts, things you view online, because your sins will always be your own, but being under the influence of anyone or anything wicked is absolutely going to make those sins all the worse. Now, if this is hitting home with any of us right now, then actually we're in line with Ahab. This is is a pretty remarkable thing because at least for the moment, we see maybe the most surprising thing that we see in all of 1 Kings, right? Some really could acknowledge this as the most surprising thing. I don't know that I'll say that for sure. I'd have to really study, but it certainly is surprising. Verses 27 to 29. But when Ahab heard this message, He tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Now, we're gonna have a lot more to say about the state of Ahab's heart in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so I'm gonna pause that full commentary for a moment until we get to chapter 22. But we do see him at least temporarily express a great level of remorse and regret for what happened. And so of course the Lord responds to that. The Lord is righteous and he responds to the response of Ahab. And note God's response. He does not take away the judgment that must come. Rather, he postpones it. Judgment is not canceled, it is merely postponed. For what purpose? Well, I'm sure there's many purposes, but at least one would be to see how things are going to go forward now for Ahab and his sons. For instance, if Ahab's immediate sons are faithful and follow the Lord with all their hearts, then will the Lord punish them for their father's sins in that ultimate sense of course not the lord is showing us right here that he reserves the right to postpone judgment especially in the face of repentance and that he is always going to do right by every individual person think of it this way this is it's kind of the flip side to how we think of God's dealings with David and David's descendants. God promised David that his dynasty would last forever, a guaranteed promise. But that does not mean that David's descendants get a pass on anything sinful they do. They will be responsible for all of their sins, and yet the promise is that the end of David's line will most certainly be someone to come who will reign and rule on his throne forever and ever. Right Now, on the flip side, God has now decreed that the guaranteed judgment for Ahab and Jezebel's sins requires the elimination of their dynasty from ruling in the northern kingdom, just as it was Baasha and Jeroboam. 
That doesn't mean that his descendants will be punished if they are righteous and follow the Lord. They will be treated with justice and righteousness from the Lord based on their own actions. And yet, we now know that the certain end of Ahab's line will absolutely be the ultimate removal of his dynasty from the throne eventually. That is a certainty and that penalty will be permanent. Based on Ahab's actions, his descendants will at some point be permanently removed from the throne of Israel in conjunction with his descendants' sins as well. And of course, we'll work our way through that as we move throughout first and then second Kings. You see, even though in a fallen world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness temporarily, in God's economy, wickedness will always be punished permanently. And that is 1 Kings 21 for us this morning. But before we finish, I wanna take our last seven to eight minutes thinking about the way that this scene in so many ways really plays itself out just about a thousand years later. And I'll say this, if y'all have missed anything else this morning, don't miss this. Zoom in at this point and get this the last seven or eight minutes. Dale Ralph Davis reminds us, and he's exactly right here, there is also a Naboth in the New Testament, isn't there? One can hardly read 1 Kings 21 and Matthew's passion account without seeing that Jesus stands in Naboth's very place. So let me read just a little bit of that. Matthew 26, 59 to 61, we're in the Easter season, we're moving forward to things. So maybe this will be a good way for all of us to begin to get this on our mind as we move our way towards Easter Sunday. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men, right, came forward who declared, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And then skipping down to verse 65, after Jesus's response, we read, then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. And of course, from there, through another series of events, he too is dragged outside the city and killed. You see, Jesus stood exactly where Naboth stood. It is so similar that we cannot read 1 Kings 21 without noting how it is predictive of the type of trial and punishment Jesus goes through. And then, get this, when we consider, think about this, Jesus's parable of the vineyard that he told the leading religious leaders in Matthew 21, just a little bit before his trial. We see that the religious leaders are actually killing the master's son in order to keep the vineyard for themselves. And of course, who is the vineyard? That would be God's people. And the connections go on and on and on. What I'm saying is this, even for Jesus, as he came into this fallen world, he knew that he was entering 
a sinful state of mankind where one of the effects of sin is that inside this fallen world, wickedness is often victorious over righteousness temporarily. And there is no worse example of that than Jesus' Passion Week, his betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion. We cannot look at that scene without acknowledging that yes, in this fallen world, wickedness often triumphs over righteousness temporarily. And yet, it was in that awful scene of Jesus's gruesome death that the permanent penalty for all of the sins of his people gets satisfied. And in his resurrection, we see the certainty of that victory, and then the dawning of a new era, a new era that is overlapping with the present era, but will one day become the only era. You see, Jesus chose to endure a world where our first point this morning is true, because in God's economy, the second point is true as well. And let me say that another way. Jesus knew that the penalty for the wickedness and sinfulness in all of his dear children is a permanent, eternal death that must be satisfied, right? That second point in God's economy, that is true. That is the state of every human's future in and of ourselves. Yes, it can be postponed or delayed. And even from the time Adam and Eve sinned, God is postponing and delaying that final judgment, but it cannot be removed. It must be satisfied. And hence, Jesus came and endured our first point this morning in order to meet the demands of our second point this morning for all of his people. And it was actually because of our first point this morning, amazingly, that the second point this morning ends up being satisfied. You see, God uses sin sinlessly. Does God love the fact that life in a fallen world means that wickedness often triumphs over righteousness temporarily? Of course he doesn't. But what is amazing is that when the end of the world arrives, we will look back and see how in God's sovereignty, every single way that wickedness triumphed over righteousness temporarily actually brought about a greater end for God and all of his people somehow. Now, do not ask me how that plays out in every situation that you could bring to your mind right now because I do not know. But I can tell you it's true because God's word says it's true and because the greatest example of it, Jesus' Passion Week and his crucifixion shows us that it is true. So as we close our sermon this morning, let me say this. We should mourn every time wickedness triumphs over righteousness in this world every time right if we're not moved by that then then we just become desensitized to that truth right we should mourn every time that happens and we're going to see it every day in fact if it was true for Naboth's sons because of Naboth's righteousness then it will be true of Jesus's sheep because of Jesus's righteousness. Thus, we should expect that in the short term, wickedness is gonna gain momentary fleeting victories over us because of Christ's righteousness and our own. But while we mourn that fact temporarily, we can also rejoice in this one. Y'all, this world is passing away. And when it does, 
Our first point this morning will be gone like a mist over the sea. It will fade away never to return again. And for all who have come to faith in Christ, we will rejoice that when the day of judgment is no longer postponed, we will be found to have no more penalty left to be paid. For our righteous Savior, the greater Naboth himself, endured our first point in order to free each one of us from our second point. The freedom from the penalty for our sins. And hence, when this world passes away, for those found in Christ, not only will the first point vanish like a mist, but so will the second point as well. Because there is no place for wickedness or punishment in the new heavens and the new earth, which y'all is one day coming soon. And when it does, it will last forever and ever. I hope each one of us will be there together when that day arrives. So come to Jesus if you never have before. And if you have, then let me encourage you this morning, rejoice in that salvation as you endure this world until the day that final judgment is no longer postponed and the new era that Christ has initiated is the only era left for us to experience for all of eternity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we admit that we are so desensitized to these things in this world that we don't put all of our hope in the glorious salvation that will be revealed when your son returns. Lord, that we sometimes get tricked or fooled into thinking that the victories the wicked have right now are more substantial than they really are. Lord, we lose sight of the fact that in your sovereignty, we don't know why things are allowed to happen in this world, but that we can trust you, that you even still are using all things to bring about your good purposes. Not that you rejoice in them, and we never credit those wicked things, but we credit your sovereignty over them to bring about your good purposes for your people. Lord, may you help us to have that view in mind. And Lord, may you help us as the adults here at Village Press instill this in our children here. And Father, we thank you for your, your son, for his work on our behalf. And Lord, we look forward because of his work to the day that judgment is no longer postponed for our judgment has been dealt with and we look forward to the day that the new era is found in full on that day. Lord, may you put all of our hope in our hearts and our souls in that day right now. We pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.